John 15. We'll start in verse 18, read through to verse 25. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours too. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me, he hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mighty and awesome word. We thank you for the fact that it transforms hearts. That Holy Spirit, as you work through Holy Word, there is transformation that occurs. There's a change that is possible that is not possible any other way. We thank You. Pray You'd help us to be attentive today. To listen carefully and to be attuned to what it is that You're saying to us. We thank You. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Our expectations have a very significant impact on how we live. Expectations inform our perspective and they help us in the role of interpreting words and events and behaviors. The continued rise of technology offers us a good example of this. Even 20 years ago, should you attempt to contact someone, you wouldn't expect that they could immediately be reachable. But now today, with things like smartphones, we expect not only phone calls, but emails and text messages to be responded to with promptness. This is so much the case that we often feel it necessary when we go on vacation to leave an automated message in our email box to tell people, I've gone on vacation. Because even if it's a few days that pass, people will think, man, they must not care about me. They haven't responded to me within a day or two. Now, no matter how you feel about that expectation change, right, wrong, or indifferent, it is the case. We now live in a world in which the expectation is that you are reachable at any time and for any reason. Expectations have a great impact on the way in which you interpret the world around you. As I was thinking about this as a theme, I couldn't help but remember an experience that I had in my teens that occurred while I was at youth camp. My youth pastor had asked me and a couple of the other leaders in the youth group to go out of the main meeting room into a side room where he said he needed to talk to us about something. He handed each one of us a piece of paper and he told us not to let anyone else see the piece of paper that you were given. And then he told us, your task is to mentally prepare to act out whatever is on your sheet of paper. And when I call you in one by one, You'll come into the room and you'll act it out and people are going to try to guess and see what you were, what you were doing. It's kind of like a game of charades. I received a short phrase and the phrase said, 
Weightlifting a weight much too heavy for you. Weightlifting a weight much too heavy for you. Now, I was no actor, and if you knew me back in high school, I was um, not very extroverted either. But I didn't want to let my youth pastor down. I really, really looked up to him, and I wanted to be helpful to him. I was, was assured that it must be some sort of illustration he's going to use in the message that he was about to give to the youth group. So I started mentally preparing for this and thinking about what I was going to do. Well, one by one, the other leaders of the youth group were pulled into the other room while I was finally, eventually left alone, standing in the room waiting for my turn to be called. And every once in a while, I heard a little bit of chuckling and laughter in the room nearby. And so I thought to myself, I need to really make sure that I go to great lengths to get this thing across because I'm not much of an actor and I don't want to have to be up there for very long. So I'm going to make sure I come in there, you know, guns are blazing. I'm going to get this thing done. Everyone's going to guess it quick, and then I'll be done. I'll go sit down, and I'll be all set. Well, finally, my name was called, and I entered into the room. As soon as I entered the room, I spied and saw a coffee table that was sitting there. So I began to lay down, and I thought, hey, I'll do a bench press, and I'll just, you know, show how hard it is to lift this uh, weight that I've got supposedly above me. But as I started to lay down, my youth pastor said, no, 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 you, you can't lay there. You have to sit here in this chair. Well, that wasn't part of the instructions originally given, but okay, I can work with that. I'll sit down in the chair, and now I'm thinking, okay, I'll just like, you know, curl something. That's what I'll do. I'll just sit here and curl. So, as soon as I sat down, I began straining to lift pretend dumbbells from the floor. You know, slowly inching my my hands up, my fists clenched. I started to let every vein in my neck pop out. My eyes were bulging, and I'm grunting. Like this. Well, people start laughing hysterically. I mean, the whole room is like in a roar. People are jumping up and down. I think there are some kids rolling on the floor. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, I'm doing a really good job. They're, gonna, they're catching what this is exactly what's going on. I knew I could do this. I knew I could do this. Look, everyone else is enjoying my acting. They don't normally see me in this light. This is something out of character for Jess Larson. And so this is really cool. And like I'm going to be like one of the cool kids now in the youth group instead of one of the nerds. This is really wonderful and fantastic. I continued the act of weightlifting until finally giving up and having to let down my pretend dumbbells. It was too heavy to me. And I crumpled to the floor in defeat. And as soon as I hit the floor, the entire room was just... I mean, it was deafening, the amount of laughter that was going on. And it was about that moment as I'm laying on the ground that I'm thinking to myself, am I really that funny? Like, am I really that funny? Do people see me as that hilarious? And after a moment of introspection, I decided I'm not that funny. I'm just not that funny. Something's going on. Once the laughter began to kind of come down a little bit, the youth pastor came over to me and told me that he had told the room a little bit different than what he had told me while in the other room. You see, he hadn't told them I was coming in to do a charade for them to guess. He told them that I was going to come in and demonstrate what I do when I'm suffering from constipation. My response was shock and horror. I don't really remember anything else that happened that week at youth camp. I had become the object of a huge prank. But as with so many experiences in our life, I look back on it now and I see that even that moment of humiliation, God used to bring me out of some of my introverted self and laugh at myself a little bit too. I didn't like it very much. I was humiliated and humbled on the occasion. I still loved my youth pastor. I was quite upset with him. But 
I learned how important a person's expectations are to their interpretation of, a, of an event. I had a completely different expectation going into that room than the rest of the room had regarding it. The other students expected to see a man in some pain looking for bowel relief. I expected the other students to be watching me attempt to lift a huge weight. And all of my over-the-top acting to try to get it done faster only added to the hilarity of the moment. Paul Tripp, in a book that he has recently written, titled, What Did You Expect?, is a book written regarding marriages. And in the book, he sets out to try to explain why so many marriages suffer from disappointment. And his point being that disappointments flow from unmet expectations. We have a certain expectation, and that expectation doesn't come to pass, and then we become disappointed. And when not dealt with rightly, the disappointment leads to anger and frustration and bitterness and resentment, and on and on the thing goes. We all struggle with setting unrealistic expectations for others. And, of course, we always excuse ourselves for not meeting the expectations that we have for ourselves or anyone else. We're very gracious with ourselves. But we're not very gracious with others and how they meet the expectations that we have placed upon them. Tripp's main point in the book is to attempt to shift our view away from placing expectations on one another and seeing if anyone else meets the expectations that we've set up to instead saying that the real problems within our marriage is, while we always say it's our spouse's fault that is the issue, instead the challenge is a real war that's going on in our own hearts. It's a heart war within ourselves that needs to be considered. Only when we admit our own sin and realize that we are married to a sinner who is just as much in need of the grace, mercy, love, forgiveness of Christ as we are, will we start to see real healing in marriages. We have to expect that living in a fallen world, being a fallen person, and being married to a fallen person means that there's going to be a lot of grace work to do. There's a good and biblical expectation that ought to be placed in all of our marriages. Well, in this farewell discourse, Jesus is providing his disciples with a lesson in expectations. He's comforted them already with the promise that he's going away to prepare a place for them to bring them home to one day. He's exhorted them to not let their hearts be troubled. He's told them to never aban- he'll never abandon or forsake them. He's given them insight into the coming events, so that way when the event happens, it would strengthen their faith. He's encouraged them to keep His commandments. He's told them to bear fruit in keeping with the vitality of the vine that, they've been, that they're attached to, Himself. He's called these men friends, because He's disclosed to them everything that the Father told Jesus. Jesus has told these men, and He promises to provide for them. He loved them and He yearned for them to love one another and to grow in their relationship with Him and with one another. To benefit others all for God's glory. But Jesus' love for these men meant He would also prepare them for the reception that they were going to receive from the world. He didn't want to set up an unfair expectation as to how things are going to go after Jesus dies and rises again. So He's setting an expectation for His disciples He doesn't want them coming into the room thinking it's going to be one way when it's quite the opposite. He doesn't want them to have that sort of experience. He doesn't want there to be a surprise about what's going to happen. There's no bait and switch tactics here. He's real and genuine and true. So here in John 15, 18-25, in a sermon entitled Expectations, we'll consider two sets of expectations this morning. 
The first set is earthly expectations. We call them the here and now expectations. Earthly here and now expectations. And then in a minute we'll talk about heavenly there and then expectations. So earthly expectations and heavenly expectations. I think if you can latch hold of both of these ideas of expectations regarding this earth and expectations regarding the new heavens and new earth, you'll be greatly benefited in your Christian walk. And if you're not a Christian... Hopefully it will bring you to a place of repentance and faith in Christ. Let's first of all talk about earthly expectations, the here and now. And before I talk about it any further, I, I want to first discuss the problem that comes with unbiblical expectations. What happens when we have unbiblical expectations that we're operating from? Jesus is here concerned to give his disciples appropriate expectations. He doesn't want them taken by surprise. It's not loving to give someone an unrealistic, unbiblical expectation for what following Jesus will be like. Sadly, sometimes this has been done today. Out of an effort to cause people to get out of seats and walk down an aisle, there's been unfair promises, untrue promises given to people. Great comfort has probably been one of the frontrunners in trying to battle this tendency in modern-day evangelistic methodology. And he's famously illustrated this with the use of two airplane passengers who were given parachutes. Some of you have heard this before, but I feel it's so helpful in this regard that I want to read an excerpt from um, Comfort on this matter. If you've never listened to Hell's Best Kept Secret, you should. It's a fantastic sermon. But here's an excerpt from that. Two men are seated in a plane. The first is given a parachute and told to put it on as it will improve his flight. He's a little skeptical at first because he can't see how wearing a parachute in a plane could possibly improve the flight. After a time, he decides to experiment and so see if the claim is true. He puts it on and he notices the weight of it upon his shoulders. He finds he's having difficulty sitting upright. However, he consoles himself with the fact that he was told that the parachute would improve his flight. So he decides to give the thing a little time. He waits. And as he waits, he notices that some of the other passengers are laughing at him. Because he's wearing a parachute in the plane. He begins to feel somewhat humiliated. As they begin to point and laugh at him, he can stand it no longer. He slinks in his seat. He unstraps the parachute and throws it to the floor. Disillusionment and bitterness fill his heart because as far as he was concerned, he was told an outright lie. It didn't make his trip any easier. It resulted in persecution and trials and difficulties and suffering. The second man is given a parachute, but listen to what he's told. He's told to put it on because at any moment he'd be jumping 25,000 feet out of the plane. He gratefully puts the parachute on. He doesn't notice the weight of it upon his shoulders, nor does he care that he can't sit upright. His mind is consumed with the thought of what could happen to him if he jumped without the parachute. Now, let's analyze the motive and the result of each passenger's experience. The first man's motive for putting on the parachute was solely to improve his flight. The result of his experience was that he was humiliated by the passengers, he was disillusioned and somewhat embittered against those who gave him the parachute in the first place. As far as he's concerned, it'll be a long time before anyone gets him to put one of those things back on again. The second man puts the parachute on solely to escape the jump to come. And because of his knowledge of what would happen to him without it, he has deep-rooted joy and peace in his heart, knowing that he's saved from sure death. This knowledge gives him the ability to withstand the mockery of the other passengers. His attitude towards those who gave him the parachute is one of heartfelt gratitude. Now, here's the connect point. 
Listen to what the modern, a lot of the modern gospel people are saying as they present the gospel. Put on the Lord Jesus and he'll give you love, joy, peace, fulfillment, and lasting happiness. In other words, Jesus will improve your flight. So the sinner responds and in an experimental fashion. He puts on Jesus to see if the claims are true. And what does he get? Well, promise temptation, tribulation, and persecution. The other passengers mock him. So what does he do? is done with this. He's disillusioned and somewhat embittered, and quite rightly so. He was promised peace, joy, love, fulfillment, lasting happiness. And all he got were trials and humiliation. His bitterness is directed towards those who had give him, given him the so-called good news. And here's Comfort's point. Saints, instead of preaching that Jesus improves the flight, we should be warning the passengers that they're going to have to jump out of the plane. It's appointed unto man to die once, and after that, the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 when a sinner understands the horrific consequences of breaking God's law, then he will flee to the Savior solely to escape the wrath that's to come. And if we're true and faithful witnesses, that's what we'll be preaching, that there is a wrath to come, that God commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. Why? Because He's appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness, verse 31. You see, the issue isn't one of happiness. The issue is one of righteousness. It doesn't matter how happy a sinner is, how much he's enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. Without the righteousness of Christ, he'll perish on the day of wrath. Riches profit not on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Peace and joy are legitimate fruits of salvation, but it's not legitimate to use these fruits as a draw card for salvation. If we continue to do so, sinners will respond with impure motives, lacking true and genuine repentance. He makes a fantastic point. The message of the gospel is repent, ye sinners, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Disappointment will always follow those who make unrealistic, unbiblical, untrue expectations for people. When you tell, and this is the problem, this is the danger of the health and wealth gospel today, right? It makes these promises that if you follow Jesus, you'll never get sick. You'll be rich and prosperous. What do these people do? When the riches don't come, what do they do when they're sick? What do they do when family members who are sick don't get well? What does that mean? There's all kinds of disillusionment and misunderstanding. Ultimately, leads to disenfranchisement and anger and hostility. The problem in all of this is that people are craving for this world right now to be better than it is and instead, we're being told of a better life still yet to come. Our best life is not now. It is yet to come in the new heavens and the new earth. So what can we expect from the world? Well, Jesus is very plain about this. The world we live in, while being originally created good, was subjected to futility as a consequence of the fall of mankind recorded in the book of Genesis. God's good work, while still declaring His glory and even his invisible attributes are clearly seen, right, through what God has made. His wisdom and his power, his grandeur, his creativity, his intelligence. We, we can know things about God even by looking at the world that God has created. So the world in one sense is still good in that sense, but yet it's marred by the fall. Man's sin has affected the entire earth. So we must not forget that we live on a fallen planet. Rebellious man hates God, and therefore he hates anything associated with God. Meanwhile, Jesus says, 
You are ones whom I have chosen. I have elected out of the world and I've saved you. I've called you to myself. So what kind of response can you expect from the world? Well, the world hates them because they're defectors from the rebellion. Jesus' choice to save people out of the world has elicited animosity and hatred from the world towards those whom God has saved. The world hates God. Therefore, it hates God's Son. Remember, Jesus says in this text, the reason why they hated me is because they didn't know the One who sent me. If they knew the Father, then they would know the Son. Since they hate the Father, they hate His Son, and therefore they hate anyone who follows God's Son. We could say it this way, we're hated by association. I had the privilege of going to an Astros game on Friday um, and hanging out there with Seth and Michael and Steve. And looking around the stadium, you saw not only people dressed with Astros jerseys, but with a multitude of other sorts of jerseys, even like the Yankees. I have no idea why that was the case, because they weren't playing the Yankees, they are playing the Red Sox. But anyway, at one point in the game, all of a sudden the cameras start shifting around the stadium and start zeroing in on people, and realize, you realize that they're zeroing in on Red Sox fans. And how did they know they were Red Sox fans? Because they were wearing Red Sox paraphernalia, right? And then as soon as the camera zoomed down on the person, then there was a, a barrage of multiple digital effects blowing up these people. They were being slaughtered digitally throughout the entire stadium, while every Astros fan clapped uh, tremendously at the destruction of the enemy, the Red Sox, who were somehow in our home field. Okay, so, so we're watching that. Well, why is this happening? Because they're guilty by association. They're associating themselves with the Red Sox. Therefore, if we don't like the Red Sox, we also don't like the fans of the Red Sox. Right? That's how this works. And certainly, it's hopefully always playful. But this is the way, in a much more real and substantial way, this is how it is for Christians. Identifying with Christ means we will receive the same treatment that Christ received. The way that the world thinks about Jesus, they'll also think about those who follow Jesus. The world hates us because we don't fit anymore into the world's way of doing things. We've been called out of the world and no longer belong to it. We've been chosen out of it. So Jesus says, don't be surprised by suffering. They all say, you know, don't be perplexed by persecution. Jesus is trying to remove any element of surprise in this. Don't be astonished by the world's hatred. Understand it's commonplace for those who love God. For those who love Jesus, 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 God's own Son, was hated by the world. So if you follow Jesus, you will receive the same treatment as He did. Jesus says, a servant or a slave is treated just as his master is. The world is working hard to conform everyone to its mold. Hence, we're told to you know, continually be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we're not molded into the mold that the world would like to have for us. And if we don't conform to the world's way of doing things, then we'll be persecuted. And yes, in some countries, that means even death. In America, that's not as present, at least at the moment. It could be in coming days. But it will mean some form of persecution, some sort of ridicule, some sort of separateness, some sort of ostracizing. There will be something that comes your way if you continue to live your life for God's glory in obedience to God the Son. But this also means, the other good news of this, is that those who listen to Jesus will also listen to you, Jesus says. He says, those who listened to me and heard my words and obeyed them, they'll also listen to you. They'll hear your words and obey them. So in other words, whether you get a reception or a rejection, it's going to be just an indication of whether or not they have received or rejected 
Jesus. Let me just share this. Sometimes people get scared if they share the gospel with somebody else and they you know, reject the gospel. They're like, oh, I pushed them away from Jesus. Just understand, again, I think you can do things that are uh, mean-spirited and not loving and kind. We, but if you speak the truth in love, courageously and boldly, but you speak it in love, and they reject the gospel, you're not the one that caused that. All you've done is expose what was already in their heart. You just exposed what was already there. Jesus is saying here, if they don't receive you, then it's just exposing how they receive me or their lack of receiving me as well. Our efforts to bring the truth of the gospel to people who are lost and headed to hell, who are otherwise going to a Christless eternity, is sadly not only refused at times, not only do lost people sometimes refuse what we have to say, but sometimes they hotly reject it and criticize and persecute those who try to bring this message to them. In Acts 4.18, Peter and John are charged specifically to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Stop this preaching in the name of Jesus. That was the point of contention. We talk, we've talked about this before, right? Even In America today, you can speak generally about God, and you usually don't get into much issue. But you start talking specifically about Jesus, there's where there's all of a sudden a problem, Right? It's praying in Jesus' name that all of a sudden becomes an issue for people. It's being bold and clear about the claims about who Jesus Christ is that all of a sudden causes a problem in this world. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, a Christian function a Christian functions as a peacemaker and therefore is called the Son of God, Matthew five nine. And in Matthew five, thirteen through sixteen, we're likened unto salt and light. But right in between all of that, so we're peacemakers and we're salt and light in the world, right in between all of that, he speaks about, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. It seems such a contrastive picture that the person who comes as the peacemaker is the one that they make war against. I'm coming to tell you about how you can have peace with God. And yet, those who come with that wonderful good news often become the one who receives insults and persecutions and defamation from the world. Jesus says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's what he says here in the Sermon on the Mount. And now here later on in, in, in John's Gospel, Jesus is saying, this is how they treated me. They treated the prophets before you. They treated me this way. Why do you think you should get any different treatment? Jesus is saying. So don't be surprised by the world's insatiable hatred. Philippians 1.29 To you it has been granted not only to believe in His name, but also to suffer for His sake. You've been given two gifts. Belief and suffering. <laughs> You've been granted. You've been gifted with these things. Belief and suffering. And they're a package deal. Should you believe genuinely in Christ, suffering will definitely be part of the Christian life here on this earth. Second Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. The only way that you can avoid persecution is to not live godly. That's why that's one of those verses is always a really good heart check for us, isn't it? If we don't see much persecution coming our way, we might have to ask the question, have I been standing courageously for the gospel? Have I been sharing my faith with neighbors and friends and co-workers and family members? Have I been bold about what Jesus has said? 
have been clear about the Word of God. We had read also this morning from 1 Peter 4, 12-16, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. I was talking to Randy about this. This would be called unstrange fire, right? Unstrange fire. He says, this isn't a strange thing. This is the sort of fire that you will encounter in this life. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Because I'm to say, make sure you don't suffer because you're a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. That's not rewarded. That's just, you're just getting what you're due. You've done something wrong. But you do what is right. And for the cause of Christ, you are persecuted and suffer for it. Rejoice. Rejoice in this. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Ryle mentions that persecution has been the lot of true believers throughout the 18 centuries of Christian history. The doings of Roman emperors and Roman popes, the Spanish Inquisition, the martyrdoms of Queen Mary's reign, all tell the same story. Persecution is the lot of all really godly people at this very day. Ridicule, mockery, slander, misrepresentation still show the feeling of unconverted people against the true Christian. As it was in St. Paul's day, so it is now. Ultimately, the world persecutes Christians because the world rejects God. And they reject God's Son. And we, as God's ambassadors, are treated as the world treats God. Our second point, though. We should have an expectation regarding this earth that we will suffer persecution. There will be difficulties and trials. But here's the good news. Point two. Heavenly expectations. Heavenly there and then expectations. You see, the problem with unbiblical expectations also flows into this. It's sad when we have wrongful expectation when it comes to not only this life, but also the life to come. Christians spend far too little time contemplating what is yet to come. We would do well to have a rightful expectation regarding this life, but we would also do very well to think and cultivate a set of biblical expectations involving the life to come. The truth is that heaven will be a place where every expectation is exceeded. Do you understand? There will be no disappointment in heaven. For there to be disappointment, there has to be expectation that is not met. But in heaven, since all those in heaven love God, they will receive what they've been craving. They'll receive Him. And God never disappoints. He is more good and He is far greater than we can conceive, much less be able to express with words. In the famous words of the song, The Love of God, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Heaven will be truly amazing. Beyond all ability to think or conceive. You see, in the world to come, the world will get its just deserves. The world will receive the judgment it deserves. No one will escape God's holy wrath and perfect righteousness. No one will escape that. 
Acts 17.31, He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof of this by raising Him from the dead. Jesus, the amazing Savior, is also the righteous judge. And on that day, on that fixed day, He will judge the world in righteousness. There will be a judgment pronounced. Jesus in coming has removed every excuse. He came. He spoke. He did works among the populace and religious leaders which no one else did. He talks about it here in this passage. He says, I did these things in your midst. I did things that no one else has done. And Jesus says, being so plainly manifest to you, your guilt is increased. No one could claim ignorance among the Jewish leadership. They have been afforded great privileged hearing and viewing of Jesus. Now, it's not that the world is without sin apart from Jesus' coming. Don't read these words as if Jesus is saying that you didn't have any sin before I came. What he's saying is that there's an adding to your account. You stood condemned before I came. You can read about this in other places in Scripture, good, a couple of good places like John 3.18. You know, Jesus didn't have to come into the world to condemn the world. The world has already stood condemned. He came to save men out of the world. Even creation itself provides enough evidence regarding God to condemn the world. Check out Romans 1. And added to that, God has given a conscience to men. so says that they know that they're doing wrong. He's written His law on their heart, is the way that Romans 2 describes that. So it's not as if Jesus is saying here that nobody had any sin until I showed up. We had sin before Jesus came. But Jesus' coming exposed the sinful and rebellious dispositions that were already present in these religious leaders, and it added to their guilt. I say it this way, with a greater privilege comes a greater responsibility. Luke 12, 48 says, To whom much is given, much will be required. For some reason, there's sometimes been circulated that you know everyone's experience in hell will be exactly the same. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches a gradation. There's a, there's a grading sort of thing that happens in the punishment in hell. How do we know this? We read, a couple, we read a passage this morning. Luke 11 is a good example of this. 31 and 32. The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. It was evident that these men not only failed to keep the standard of God's law, as all of us do, but they rejected God's goodness in His provision of grace in the person of His Son. D.A. Carson says, Whatever pretense the world might have conjured up to justify its evil before the coming of Christ, and he goes on to say, it's just completely made up by by their own um, illogical minds, it is entirely lost now that this sublime revelation from God Himself has come. This revelation simultaneously exposes sin and provides its remedy. The world that rejects it hates the exposure and thus denies any need for the remedy. What are you saying is this? This is what Jesus said earlier. He said, the reason why you reject me is you reject the light because you love the darkness. I, Jesus came as the solution, as the remedy to our sinful problem. But because men are prideful and arrogant and don't want to admit and give up their sin, they rejected their only hope of salvation. Again, listen to Matthew 11. You, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles that occurred in Sodom 
occurred in you, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Do you remember what happened with Sodom? <laughs> you remember fire and brimstone falling on that entire city? He's saying that in the day of judgment, people in Sodom will have an easier time of it than you will. What's the difference? Jesus is the difference. Jesus is, I was here preaching to you and you rejected me. You were granted more light. You see this way, with more light comes more responsibility. Is a person who's in Africa who's never heard about Jesus, who never repents of their sin, never trusts in Jesus, is that person going to hell? Yes. Is a person in America who's heard about Jesus all his life and rejected the testimonies of him going to hell? Yes. But there will be a difference in the punishment that those two men receive. We have a hard time getting our hands around concepts like eternity. And so for this reason, it's hard for us to quantify or exactly qualify it. But Matthew 11 is pretty clear. It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for Capernaum because Jesus did the majority of his earthly ministry in and around Capernaum. Ryle says this, He that dwells in a land of open Bibles and preached in the preached gospel and yet dreams that he will stand in the judgment on the same level with an untaught Chinese person is fearfully deceived. He will find to his own cost, except he repents, that his judgment will be according to the light he's been afforded. This should be a humbling and sobering thing for every hearer of the gospel. If you've been afforded the opportunity to hear the gospel, if you've been afforded the ability to have a Bible, your own Bible, some of us, multiple Bibles, we have been given a great responsibility. For what reason do these men hate Jesus? Whenever you suffer from persecution, sometimes we still do this even with like random, what we call might call random acts of, of uh, you know, disaster, these sorts of things. But I think our minds are always searching for reasons as to why something has happened, and especially when persecution comes. Like, like, why is this guy bullying me? You know, what did I do to him? And it just like wrecks, you know causes us problems in our brains. We try to figure out, why is this coming against me? Here, Jesus experienced a persecution that was completely unreasonable. Unreasonable. Look at verse 25. They have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Jesus says that this is actually a specific fulfillment of prophecy. You find this in both Psalm 35.19 as well as Psalm 69.4. In their immediate context, it's David describing persecution that's coming to him that's without a cause. These psalms are famously remembered as messianic, as pointing beyond just David to the one greater than David who would come, the Messiah. And here, Jesus says, this is just fulfilling that prophetic word that they would hate me without a cause. Sometimes we will encounter persecution and bullying and suffering and criticism and hatred and animosity that defies explanation. We will long for an explanation. We want to know why this person is treating us the way that they are. And sometimes we just won't have any reason to offer. In such cases, when that happens, you know that you're just suffering the same treatment as your Lord and Savior did. 
Except in his case, there really was no reason for the treatment that he received because he was sinless and perfect. Whereas none of us can claim that, right? All of us at some point are like, well, I have been a sinner, so maybe it's coming to me in one way or another. We always go that way. But it was a specific thing that sometimes when the reasons elude us in those cases, just remember that Jesus himself suffered. He was hated without a cause. The church will receive what Christ has earned. You see, the world will get what it deserves, but the church will receive what Christ has earned. Pressures in the here and now for Christians should just fuel our longing for the there and then. Bad stuff here and now should cause us to just long all the more for the there and then. That's why I think sometimes it's, you can usually look throughout church history, when are Christians most longing for heaven? When things here get more and more rough, right? As persecution ramps up, there's more and more desire and longing for the world to come. In a strange way, sometimes God uses the very persecution of non-Christians to cause us to long for our real homecoming. Why are so many Negro spirituals the way they are, wishing for heaven, longing for the world to come? Whenever there's pressures and trials and hardships, we come to reality that this is not our home. Something's wrong here. And we're looking for the day in which God makes all things right. Earthly persecution can lead our minds and hearts to ponder afresh heavenly possessions. The more that this world attacks, the more we ought to lean on Jesus, who is the victor and our champion, our Savior and our Lord. I know that probably by now many of you have had this opportunity, but this week I had the opportunity to visit Miss Eva in the hospital. I wasn't sure how she would be as I walked into the room. She had just been transported to the emergency room in St. Luke's. And since she had had a stroke, I wasn't sure if she would you know, even be able to respond or talk to me. I wasn't sure what, what state she was in. And as soon as I walked around the corner, I came to the door. She looked at me and she said, Brother Jess. <laughs> so I, I come over to her, her bed and it was truly um, an amazing few minutes. I went into that hospital room thinking I was going to minister to Miss Eva, and I realized that Miss Eva was doing ministry to me. All that she could talk about the whole time I was there. She's been raising her hands up like this, and she said, I got this trip here to the hospital, and now I can tell all these people about Jesus. And if I'm here long enough, the rest of my family's going to show up here, and we're going to have a reunion, because they all want to say goodbye to me before I die. And if I die, I'm going to see Jesus. So that's even better. So either I die and I go to be with Jesus and I'm ready to see him, or I stay here and I tell all these people about Jesus. I'm sitting there just like, I, I needed to hear that, Miss Eva. You, you, you don't need me. I'm going to leave now. I felt so humbled. To her, she knew that death would just usher her into the presence of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. She knows that her sins have been washed away by Jesus' blood. She trusts in Jesus' righteousness, not her own. And she wants to tell anyone she can about how wonderful her Lord and Savior is. And she'll do that through words, absolutely. And she'll do that through acts of love and service, as many of us have been the beneficiaries of. You see, while the world considers us guilty by association with Jesus, God the Father considers us innocent by association with Jesus. 
It is our association with Jesus that both merits us the hatred of the world and also the grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness of God. Do you see it? So you can choose not to associate with Jesus and have the love of the world, but you'll not have the love of the Father. But if you associate with Jesus, you'll have the love of the Father. And at that point, what does it matter that the world hates you? What does it matter if the whole world is stacked against you? If God be for you, who truly can be against you? Let's make sure that we have biblical expectations. Let's, let's make sure there are no surprises regarding suffering in this life. Jesus hasn't allowed for the surprise reaction. If we're surprised, we haven't been spending enough time thinking about this. We haven't a proper expectation regarding this world. Don't be surprised by suffering. Don't be surprised by persecution. 1 John 3.13 Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. The world hates Jesus. So everyone associated with Him will be hated. And the more you become like Jesus, there will be even further persecution because everything about you screams Jesus. And if they don't like Jesus, they won't like you. But the good news is that God is usually utilizing the testimony of His children. And as they become more and more like Jesus, they'll also be the sweet savor of salvation to those whom God is drawing into His family. Yes, those who are still rebels against God will hate you. But those whom God is calling out of rebellion back into loyal fellowship with Him they will be so eternally grateful for the testimony that you have given. Don't be surprised when trials and persecution comes in the here and now. But also, let's develop strong, hopeful expectations regarding the new heavens and new earth, the there and then. What a glorious day is coming. So as we live in the present, following the Lord, recognize that fellowshipping in His suffering is part of the joy of the Christian life but also fellowshipping in and participating in the resurrection power that He gives as we await our King's glorious return. Jesus is our sure expectation and hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your mighty and awesome Word. I pray that You would work on our expectations even here this morning. Help us to have biblical ones as we think about the here and now and the there and then. Pray that here on earth as we encounter suffering and persecution that it would cause us to just lean on You all the more. Look to You for strength. Count it a joy to be persecuted in like fashion as our Savior and Lord was. And may it cause us to long all the more for our homecoming. Father, I pray that in this room, even right now, You know the state of every man's soul. You know it in a way that no one else can. I pray that You would bring true repentance and grant true faith to those who are lost. Being in this room and hearing the Gospel preached with open Bibles, there is a great responsibility. I pray that men would awaken to that. That You would give them eyes to see and hearts to believe, ears to hear. That they right even this morning, would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. They would call out to Him. All those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We long that they would do that. Lord, thank You for what You are doing in all of our lives. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close the scene.